Welcome to You, Me, Empathy. Thank you for listening. We would like to remind you that this podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Known as just a silly boy with a feely heart. Please consider supporting the show. Check us out on Patreon or simply leave a review on iTunes. Here's your host and creator of the show, Known Wells. Hello, feely humans. Welcome to another episode of Yumi Empathy. My name is Known Wells, and this is episode 121 with my guest, Sarah Kinger. Sarah and I talk about why we matter, why you matter, dear listener, and being a light for others. Uh, Sarah also shares her experience in eating disorder recovery. We talk about rewriting old narratives. We talk about uh, perfection and feeling safe in our sickness and control and so many other things. Uh, Sarah is is exceptionally articulate and very very thoughtful and and a beautiful feely human. And I really enjoyed uh, getting to know her and getting to know her story. And I just commend her her vulnerability here in this this episode. And I think you'll love it. I think you'll get a lot of out of it. Uh, the trigger warning uh, is that we talk about eating disorders, we talk about self harm, and briefly we talk about suicidal ideation. So just a trigger warning there. And as as I record this intro, dear feely human, uh, the the quarantine is going on. I'm here in California, and we have a stay at home mandate, which essentially means don't go out unless. Uh, you're going to pick up food, grocery store, or going to the hospital or picking up medication. Essentially, that's it. And we here at home are are doing our darndest to follow that mandate because I think it's important to to not spread this thing, you know, and and to think of others and really, you know, wherever you are, um, and and however you're experiencing this, know that you're not alone and know that. It's okay to feel anxious and it's okay to feel like this is a struggle because it is. And and I feel very lucky in that I my day job, I work from home and there's not a lot of impact there, but I know so many others who are struggling and I just wanted to uh send some love out there and and tell you that you're not alone and that I'm here to talk sincerely, here to talk anytime you want. Um and and also that just remind us all that that this is truly a test of empathy right now, what's going on. And it's not every human for themselves. It's it's truly we're all in this together. And when one of us hurts, uh, someone else, you know, uh, we hurt together. We are one. I, I believe that truly. And that may, that may sound a little bit, uh, I don't know. Uh, socialistic, uh, capitalistic, or, or not capitalistic, uh, communistic, uh, but th- that's that's what I believe, and I believe that we're all in this together. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to share that and 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 remind you that you are loved, you're not alone, and we're gonna get through this, okay? Um, and I hope this 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 podcast has been a beacon of light in your life and and has helped you through feeling uh alone and and that it is my intention to to make you feel a little less alone in the world because you're not alone um so yeah that's my little spiel on 
coronavirus and quarantine. And um, I guess the other thing is is make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook uh, at Yumi Empathy for the podcast at Feely Human for the Feely Human Collective. I've been very I've been working very hard on Feely Human Collective. It's it's probably going to be out. Um, if not in April, probably May. I'm still, I still got a lot of work to do, but I've been working hard steadily. Um, certainly this coronavirus thing has, has made an impact on things, but I'm working hard. And, um, if you want to sign up for the newsletter before it's out, uh, you can do that at feelyhuman.co. Again, that's feelyhuman.co. And please, 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 you know, please, if you haven't left a rating and review in Apple Podcasts, please do that. It's a free, easy way to support the show. And the more people who do that, the more people um, who get to see and listen to this this show and get a bit more empathy into their lives. So please go to Apple Podcasts and support the show by leaving a rating and review. And thank you for that. I'll love you forever. Um, I mean, I already love you forever, but please do it anyways. Really, really helps out the show. Okay, uh, let's get into it. Shall we? Let's get into episode 121 with my guest, Sarah Kinger, on why we matter, why you matter, dear human, and being a light for others. podcast about exploring the struggles we face in our day-to-day lives as humans trying to get by on this wondrous and overwhelming pale blue dot. The intent of Yumi Empathy is to talk openly without judgment about our mental health, our neuroses, our shared anxieties and worries, to create a dialogue that is vulnerable and deeply human and empathetic, and to share that dialogue with others to inspire emotional and cognitive collaboration and insight so we can, hand in hand, Break down the stigma that make us feel shame and guilt for struggling, for feeling our feelings, for being feely humans. Yumi Empathy is a safe, friendly space designed to inspire the beauty in each of us. Today, I'm grateful to be back in the cozy empathy den with writer and self-reflecting feely human, Sarah Kinger. Hello, Sarah. Hello. How are you? You know, I think I'm, I'm doing okay. I'm excited to be here. How are you? I'm all right. I'm excited that you're here. We've been we've been uh, sort of connected online for some time now, and this has been a long time coming. So I'm I'm excited to finally have you here. And honored to be here. <laughs> um, well, uh, since you're such an avid uh, listener and fan of Yumi Empathy, uh, I uh, you you probably know where we're going next. Let's do an emotional check in. I do. How are how are you doing? Today I'm feeling um, excited and overwhelmed. Mm, I relate to that. What's what's going on? I'm excited to be here, and I'm excited to 
you know, start school up and got a lot of things starting in my life. But that's also very overwhelming. You know, there's a lot of new stuff coming up. I'm going to graduate at the end of the semester and trying to navigate life outside of college is all new to me. Yeah, I remember that time in my life many moons ago, and it's uh, it's nerve wracking. What what are you doing to like, first of all, what are you studying? And and are you how are you like preparing yourself for that jump into the void? Yeah, so I'm studying nursing. Um, I really burned myself out at the end of last semester pretty hard. Um, And so when I took my final, I kind of did what I'm calling burnout rehab. And I'm just spending a lot of time really focused on me, my feelings, what I need, um, and trying to meet as many of those needs as possible. Um, Just that I'm refreshed going back into school, that I'm refreshed going back into the workplace. Um, I think it's really important to take time for myself. Mm -hmm. And that's been my whole goal for a couple weeks now. That's a good goal. I, as you know, as we all know very well, like it's, um, that's the first thing to go (laughs) is taking, taking time for ourselves. Yeah. I think it's incredibly important to understand that we have needs. Um, I think a lot of times we just focus on the work part and not really on the rest part. Um, and that can be just really dangerous. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I, um, that's good. I'm, I'm glad to hear that you're finding that, that space to take time for yourself, especially, you know, going to school. School is a stressful time. And, you know, getting a degree in nursing is, is probably pretty, pretty challenging and, and, and um, you know, pretty sort of challenging to, you know, the time that you have throughout the day and all of that. So kudos to you for recognizing that balance you need. Well, thank you. How are you taking care of yourself? Uh, uh, thanks for asking. I, you know, I've been struggling with that lately. Um, I'm going through a particularly dark patch right now. And it's, it's interesting because I think you, what you said, you know, you're excited and overwhelmed. I, I've had a lot of that the last few months, you know, building the Feely Human Collective and, and just kind of that being sort of a thing that is both like, so fulfilling and and the thing that I want to do in my life, but also, you know, exceptionally challenging, you know, in in the sense that like, these are new muscles that I'm trying to grow and challenge. And, um, you know, it's bumping against my uh, self limiting sort of beliefs and, and insecurities and all those things. And so, um, you know, I, I, I mentioned it on, on Instagram yesterday and, um, I, I've been having, and there's a trigger warning, I, I should say, I've been having some, uh, some self-harm thoughts, which is not, which is something I, I haven't done in a long time, but it was, you know, it, uh, it was upsetting, um, and it was very vivid. And, uh, I think that, I I am telling myself an old story as my therapist is is reminding me. I'm my my old story, Sarah, is that I am not worthy, I don't deserve love, I 
need to be in pain. I should be in pain. Like my life is pain. And that is, that is the narrative that I knew and grew to, um, just grow to know and, and sort of like be this constant companion. And that, that can't be the way anymore. And I've been, it's been a, it's been, it's been very difficult to try to like sort of relinquish that control over that, you know, very obviously like damaging mindset, but it's such a familiar one. Um, so I'm battling with that right now. Um, certainly like recognizing that dark place and trying to sit with it and understand and be curious, but, but also, you know, recognize that like I'm building this thing that is, is very exciting and, you know, people have told me that they're very excited about, which is the whole point. Like I want, I want to do this for, for others and that's very exciting to me. So I'm trying to hold on to that and just kind of give myself kindness along the way if I dip down into the darkness. Yeah, it's really important that we're gentle with ourselves because every time, you know, things come up and it comes up for me too, the old narrative pops back up and it's just familiar and it kind of feels you know, comfortable, cozy, even if it's not the best narrative, at least we know how that one goes Yeah. Um, yeah. rather than working on a different one. My therapist tells me all the time, you know, any kind of behavior urge is communicating to you. Mm. So what do you need from it? Um, and for me and my own struggle with self-harm, especially with being burnt out and coming up with the same narrative of I'm not loved, I'm not worthy, I deserve to be in pain, that's something that I have to stop and lean into and listen. Um, and a lot of times I'm not meeting my basic needs when those come up or I'm not taking enough time for myself. Hmm. How do you, when you listen, and I think that's a great way to put it when you listen to those, when you're having those thoughts, like what are you, can you give me an example of some things that you've discovered that you're not, you know, areas of your life where you're not meeting your needs? Yeah. So the last time I had some really intense self-harm urges, I tried this. Um, and so I took some time away from everybody, away from my family and friends. Um, and I sat with, with just, you know, me and my dog, um, took a second to calm down took a couple deep breaths and then felt like I was trying to ask my inner child, the old me, what I needed. And whatever came to mind, I tried to provide. So in that moment, I realized I was really tired. I hadn't slept well for several days. I was really hungry. I was thirsty. And also, I was just overwhelmed with school. I didn't feel like I had a plan. So I took a nap. I ate something, drank some water. And then I planned out some days. I left some lighter days so that I would have more time to take care of myself. Uh, and even at the end of that, my urges weren't gone. So I sat down again and I did the same thing and realized some old painful narrative stuff is coming back as the people around me change. Hmm. And so I made an appointment with my therapist um, and I decided to push pause on those situations. So I didn't re-engage with an argument I was having with a friend because that was causing the old narrative to come up. 
Mm. I wanted to take space and time to figure out how the current Sarah responds to those things, not the past Sarah that's being triggered by the situation. Right, right. I mean, I'm impressed by how uh, articulate you speak of these things. I, I, um, how old are you, Sarah? I'm 22. Yeah, I, I mean, (laughs) at 22, I was, I was, uh, well, I was, I was a mess. Um, and I like to, I like to say that I was a monster, but I wasn't a monster. I was just, uh, not very in tune with, with my body and, and not in therapy. Um, so kudos for you for being in therapy. I think it takes, takes a lot of courage to, to do that. Well, thank you. Yeah. So what are like, what are some of these old narratives that, that you're struggling with that you had, that you have been struggling with? I think my biggest one consistently comes back to nobody cares. Mm. That's something that I don't really seem to, it's one I can't kick. Um, Like nobody cares about you? Typically. Mm. Yeah. Um, It's a constant worry of mine that I am the only person on the planet that doesn't really matter. Mm. Um, I firmly believe that everybody has people that love them and care about them and that are important to their lives, except for me. Mm. Um, So I'm really, you know, focusing on who really does care um, and building stronger relationships in that also working on it in therapy and talking about where did this narrative come from um and as i explore where it came from i realize as a child i misinterpreted a lot of things um but as kids you don't we don't think about the we don't think about a different perspective of looking at things um so with the nobody cares about me comes with nobody loves me um I don't matter to anyone. I am a waste of space. Those things tend to come up pretty repeatedly for me. Mm. Um, And, you know, I have to address them as they come. Yeah. Where do you, have you discovered any, anything about where some of that had sort of originated in childhood? I think I've always been prone to some really extreme emotions Mm -hmm. and jumping to conclusions very quickly. It's something that I did as a kid and something that I do now. Um, And it's something that is part of my personality disorder. Mm. Um, But as a kid, I think small things, I remember people just saying it's not a big deal and I would be very, very upset by it. Um, It was pretty consistent that when I got upset, and somebody would tell me, you know, it's not that big of a deal that I would then feel very dismissed. Oh, um, yeah. No, I relate to that. Yeah. And so from there, I immediately went to nobody cares about me. Sure. Can you give me an example of a situation where someone had said that to you? Um, I remember a lot in school, preschool especially, I was very perfectionistic. Um, and I had, I had multiple teachers, classmates, 
think that I was just overdoing it. Um, I remember trying to do something over and over and over and get it right, and it never felt right. Um, And so I would just keep going. And at one point, one of the teachers in my classroom said, you know, Sarah, this isn't that big of a deal. You can move on. And I remember just bursting into tears, um, you know, feeling like she didn't get it, feeling like I couldn't move on. I was very stuck in my own imperfection. Um, and then for somebody to give me permission to move on, felt like they didn't see the imperfection. Yeah, they didn't see what you were dealing with. They didn't see you, right? Yeah, yeah. And was that the, the disorder that you referred to? Do you think? You know, I'm not really sure. I think that all kids are prone at some point or another to jump to conclusions and to draw inaccurate conclusions. And that's what makes all of us, you know, human and imperfect. And at the same time, I wonder if any other kid my age would have jumped to that conclusion. Um, And I really don't know. Um, I think all kids draw conclusions from their environment and make it about them because children are so egocentric and they should be. But the fact that I pulled a negative belief about myself from what could have been a very positive experience of somebody giving me permission to let go of a mistake, that makes me question things a little bit more. But when you say let go of a mistake, what do you mean by that? At the time, I was, if something was wrong or I couldn't get it right, I would just sit and do it over and over and over until it felt right. And I would get very frustrated and very worked up. And I had multiple times where a teacher typically or another adult in my life would tell me, it's okay, it doesn't have to be perfect. Mm. And would give me kind of the permission to move on to a different activity, move on to a different stage of life, focus on something else. And I would not be able to do that. Um, They gave me, they gave my mind the permission to let go, to not make things perfect. And I was never one to be able to actually let go. Um, It felt more binding to let go than it did freeing to hear those words. Mm. So it wasn't necessarily the a directive by them to kind of keep going. It was kind of you putting that on yourself. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I didn't have adults in my life as a kid as a kid that focused on perfection. My parents were always just do the best you can. Same with teachers. Um, adults in my life were always, you know, encouraging me to do my best, but that my best was enough. Um, the only person who didn't appreciate my best was me. Right. And how did, you know, you talk about that example in preschool. How did that play out as you got older? Um, in early childhood into kind of my early teens, I was still, I did the same thing. Um, in middle school, I would ask for multiple copies of a worksheet for homework so that I could rewrite the words until it was it looked perfect Um, and that's something that I had to really fight to let go of in high school um, as other 
life opportunities came in, you know, learning to drive extracurriculars. I just didn't have time for that anymore. Um, and that really challenged me hard to let go of the perfectionism side. Um, that's something that I still really struggle with is to let go of making everything perfect. Um, I still have the urge to redo something, even mm. if it's good enough. So sometimes I have to let myself sit in the uncomfortableness of something not being totally perfect. Because, I mean, right. And and that's that's very wise, I think, you know, and I, I, I and I'm sure you've heard this um, countless times, but the reality is there's no such thing, right, as perfect. It's it's all subjective and you know the the journey to perfection is is one that never ends yeah absolutely it's one that can that always you can do better in right but i don't think that there is a perfect because there's always something that can be fixed or something that can be done differently and maybe that would be better and i think that's a huge part of a lot of mental illnesses kind of have that underlying perfectionism underneath, particularly things like eating disorders. Mm. Were you, you know, you talk about the teacher kind of giving you permission. Did you, were you ever met with by friends who sort of challenged you in your sort of striving for perfection or, or, you know, they were sort of, curious about it or or said you know let go sarah or your parents or was that is that a journey that you just kind of fought yourself i definitely had friends bring things up to me um even as a kid it would just be like let's go like move on i'm gonna go do this are you coming and at the time, I didn't understand how they could, you know, move on so easily. I thought maybe they had already achieved their standard of what they needed to get. They, they had reached their version of perfection. Um, and a lot of times I would hang back and continue to work on whatever I was doing repeatedly. My parents recognized the perfectionistic side of me, but never challenged it. Um, they let me do things over and over until I felt it was right. Um, and I don't blame that f- them for that. I hid a lot of the emotional distress that comes with feeling imperfect to that extent from them. And so they didn't know to intervene. Hmm. Later on in my life, as I got older and the perfectionism showed up more and more, my parents started you know, noticing, hey, this could be a problem. At what age were you when they first kind of noticed that it could be a problem? Um, I think I was around 17, which is the time they found out about my eating disorder, um, the self-harming, and the suicidal ideation. Hmm. And what they what they do? Um, they put me in treatment very quickly. They got me an outpatient therapist um, who worked with me for a few weeks until I went inpatient. Um, to a residential treatment center for my eating disorder. Um, And from there, I went to IOP for my eating disorder and back to outpatient. That was on 2015. 
So, and they've continued to support me for the past, you know, four years, teaching me that whatever happens, my mental health comes first and it matters. Um, And along the way, they've definitely challenged me when I came home from treatment. There was a lot of perfectionism around food still. Um, And there were definitely moments where my parents would kind of stop me and say, you know, it doesn't have to be perfect. It can still just be, you know, just be food or just be a meal. If it doesn't go perfectly, that's okay. And that really was a turning point for me to realize it'll be okay. Mm, Yeah. When did the, uh, you know, at 17, your parents sort of intervened. But when did the, you know, suicidal ideation, the eating disorder, the self-harm, when did those start for you? Do you remember? Yeah, my eating disorder came with the suicidal ideation um, early in middle school. I was about 12. And the self-harm came much, much later. Um, I was 14. I, 14, almost 15, I tried hard to hide it from people. Because um, you felt shame? Just, I didn't want to be interrupted. Mm. Um, my sickness felt safe. You know, the routine of counting calories felt predictable. And even though it was never enough, you know, I never restricted enough or worked out enough. Um, I never self-harmed enough. It was, at least I knew I would feel that way. Mm. It was predictable. Um, and the idea of recovery just terrified me. Um, the idea of going back to a normal weight was unthinkable at the time. Um, there were fears of how I would even survive emotions if I couldn't be self-harming and numbing them with food. So I, I didn't tell anybody. Um, people definitely noticed and brought things up to me, but I always laughed it off. Um, and there are so many misconceptions around eating disorders and self-harm that I think nobody really knew to intervene. Hmm. So this was, um, what, like five, six, seven years ago around there? Yeah. So people noticed and you noticed them noticing, but there wasn't much intervening. True. Yes. Gotcha. Interesting. Cause I, you know, I like, I think about this and I, um, I've, t- I've spoken to a lot of people who've had eating disorders, you know, uh, you know, I've had one myself, as you know, and mine, mine came at a time, you know, you know, kind of like when you're started, you know, at your age, but this, for me, this was, you know, almost 20 years ago. Um, and at that time, certainly like, you know, uh, a very similar experience in the sense that like, I think people noticed, but didn't know what to do or say. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it's it's interesting. Do you do you feel? Because I, I I guess I feel a little bit like for my story and that uh, that experience that makes me feel a little sad. That makes me feel a little resentment. Do you feel any of that, or what what are your feelings around that? 
there's definitely sadness there um, and frustration, I think, that people around me weren't more educated on what to do. And I'm not, I don't feel those things for myself or for my child self. I don't know if I'm not there yet or if it was just a fact of life for me. But I mostly tend to focus on how did nobody know what to say? Um, because now you can, you know, get on Google and millions of articles about mental health issues come up and you can narrow it down to eating disorders to go as far as anorexia. You can Google specific problems and there are probably forums for it. And I wonder if people even thought of that then, or if people were just so worried that they didn't know where to go. Um, I know that people are scared of saying the wrong thing. And I totally understand that as somebody that has both lived with mental illness and had friends with mental illness. It's scary to see your loved one go through something like that, but you never want to make it worse. And so there's that fear behind it. And I think that stopped a lot of people. Um, and so one of the messages I try to put out to the people around me whenever the subject of mental illness comes up is it's okay to ask. Um, they might not answer. They may answer in a way that you didn't expect. Um, but it is okay to ask. It's okay to wonder, to look it up or ask somebody else. Um, and I think that should be encouraged. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the best thing that we can do for each other, you know, people struggling or, or not struggling is, is to show up and, and say that we care, we love you, and, and, you know, we're there, right? You know, that's a thing that I've learned, you know, in, in certainly doing this show, but like in my own personal life and, you know, maybe being there for my brother who has schizophrenia, you know, just a thing that, you know, I've had to kind of learn about, right? And, and it's, it's, it's scary and there's fear and, you know, you know, his sort of the way he views the world is, is something that I can never know. And that's, that makes me sad. But I also just have to remind myself that if I show up with love, that's a thing that I can control. That's a thing that I can do. And I know that that can be, you know, helpful. Yeah, I think no matter what your loved one is going through, you can show up with love. I love that you said that. I think it's so, so true. We can only control what we put out there. We can't control if they'll feel the love, if they'll receive it, but we can absolutely control that we offer it. And I think that's huge, the offering it. Because, and, and offering it, multiple times because sometimes it takes a little while for those of us that are struggling to understand that we need to reach out and accept it or to understand that somebody thinks we're worthy of love. And I think that's huge that somebody understands that you still love them. Even if they're struggling, because some things can be really shameful. I can feel like I can't tell them this. They'll never love me. They'll hate me for this, etc. I think for someone to show up and say, hey, 
I still love you is it can make all the difference. Yeah. Yeah. I, the last few years I've been more intentional about just checking in with friends that I haven't spoken to in some time or just sending a message, um, telling people that I'm thinking of them. Cause it's like, as you know, Sarah, very well. And and I know very well, like people who've had trauma, people who are dealing with active or inactive eating disorders or just mental illness, uh, we're in our heads, you know, we're struggling with these ideas of self-limiting and self-hating, you know, kind of on a, on the reg, <laughs> you know, and, and so when uh, a message pops up on my phone that says, hey, buddy, I'm thinking of you and I love you, it's uh, it makes my week, right? It, it fuels me. And I, I would encourage like for the listeners, like I, I would encourage to try to adopt that practice into your own life. It's, it's really uh, a powerful one. Yeah, I've been on the giving and receiving end of those kinds of texts and it feels just as good to send them. Um, Just to know that you're able to be that little bit of light in somebody's week. Um, And receiving one of those texts means the world to me. Um, just knowing that somebody was thinking of me because I tend to forget that I exist in other people's minds, tend to forget that I matter to other people. And so getting that text is a really great reminder that my actions and what I say and what I do, they influence people other than me, that there are people that are invested in my growth and invested in our relationship. Those reminders can be kind of invaluable to somebody with mental illness. Yeah. How, like you, you meant, you know, you mentioned like reminding yourself that you matter and, and you do matter and you matter to me, I, I will say. How, how do you, Sarah, how do you get beyond just like base, sort of baseline of not mattering to building upon that and not going back to the baseline every time, you know, building upon the idea that, okay, I do matter and I matter to these people and that. That has been proven and said again and again, you know, and, and holding on to that. Okay, I matter to Johnny and Wilma or whatever. <laughs> um, and and holding on. Okay, there's two people, you know, and, and sort of building upon that as opposed to like going back to ground zero every time. Well, first of all, nice pick of uh, my friend's names. Um, <laughs> I think it... It's a game. Um, if you've ever played Clue, you'll know that you know you kind of gather evidence and you narrow down things to an answer. I think it's I think it's a lot of the same. Um, when I get a text from a friend or a message from a friend that says, "Hey, I'm thinking about you," or "Hey, congratulations on you know four years clean or whatever," I screenshot that and it all goes into a folder on my phone mm-hmm. called for the hard times. And so I go through that and I'll read it and I'll be like, okay, I still matter to these people. Um, Another thing I do is I don't go from, I try not to go from, I should say, hating myself and thinking that I don't matter to I matter to everybody and I love myself because that's a huge jump to make and my brain can't always do that. So I try to go from 
I don't matter to maybe I matter to somebody. And maybe for me is huge because it still leaves me that gap, that flexibility to move around and to feel my feelings. Um, If I go to I matter to somebody or I matter to a lot of people, I feel guilty for feeling like I don't matter. But saying maybe I matter to someone leaves me room to feel my feelings, but it also gives me that little spark of hope that I can find that person if I look and I don't have to look very far. Hmm. Another thing I've had to do is just text my friends and be like, hey, I don't feel very loved today. And can I get you a cup of coffee so we can like sit and talk for an hour? Or I'll go do something to make myself feel loved. I will have an interaction with a stranger and try to make it a positive one. So maybe I go get Froyo and I tell the cashier, I really like your hair today. And smile, tip them, just make their day. And seeing somebody else light up and seeing them realize, hey, I matter to this customer. I've put myself in their lives as somebody that has made a tiny difference. And I think it's really important to recognize that all the interactions we've had with strangers over the years matters. We are intrinsically a part of their stories now, whether or not they remember us and they remember interaction. At some point, we've impacted their lives. Mm -hmm. So in those instances, I have mattered to those people. I try to start really small with remembering and then I go bigger because again, I can't make that huge jump from I don't matter at all to I matter to everyone slash I love myself. That, that jump hasn't is too big for one day. Yeah. And I, I think it's important to, you know, maybe provide a little nuance here. Um, for you, Sarah, I would say that like, those moments where you're you're bringing light to you know the person at the froyo stand um, and you're making their day you're you're com- complimenting their hair and you're giving them a tip and you're smiling and you're having that warm positive engagement like yes you are making maybe their day matter and making them feel loved and seen and that is, to put it back on you, that's a reflection of the type of person you are, right? You're, you're, you're loving and open and caring and you care about others. And that's, that's a thing that matters. Like that is, that is, those are attributes that matter to human beings. They matter to the world, right? And the universe. And so that's an intrinsic thing that matters that will never go away. Yeah, I think it's important to recognize our own worth, definitely in those times. You know, whether or not you are actually able to go out and make somebody's day or you're able to move to maybe I matter to one person or send that text, you have survived all the days up to this point that have brought you to this point. Uh, 100% of your worst days are behind you. You have more in the future to survive and you have really good things in the future. And I think it's important to realize 
that your experiences and what you have survived says something about who you are and says something about your importance in the world. I think that's a great point. Yeah, absolutely. So can you tell me a little bit about um, your time, you know, in the sort of the throes of your eating disorder and how how that recovery process was and, and the feelings around that recovery? Yeah, absolutely. Um, when I was really engaged in my eating disorder, I was using a lot of brain space, um, you know, focusing on calories or weight loss or number of minutes or food. And that was, that was taking up so much of my time that I would struggle in school, couldn't pay attention. I didn't have the energy to come home and do homework or go out with friends. It was my life revolved very much around food and it was very difficult to introduce anything new. I couldn't go out for a spontaneous lunch with a friend because I probably had it planned it into my calories for the day. And I think that that's a very toxic mindset for somebody with an eating disorder because eating disorders thrive on isolation. And that was a great way for me to be isolated. Um, very, very quickly, I started using behaviors that weren't socially acceptable. And so I wasn't, I couldn't be around people, mm-hmm. um, or things that made me so tired that I couldn't spend time with people or I couldn't, you know, go ice skating. I couldn't go on a walk because I wouldn't last the whole walk or I wouldn't be able to stay upright on skates. Those things were very isolating to feel and still are when I think back to them that that definitely makes me sad for that younger me to think about all the opportunities she missed out on simply because of the food but the recovery process promised that I would feel better that recovery is worth it I don't know how many times I heard that phrase um And in the beginning, it did not feel like it was worth it. Um, I spent a lot of time in inpatient and residential fighting the help, um, trying to convince the staff that I didn't have a problem or trying to convince them that I would be fine if I left early. And knowing in my heart of hearts that that was just what my eating disorder wanted. I just wanted to leave and isolate and use my disorder because once you stop things start to feel painful again and you can feel the full effect of your emotions and as somebody that feels very strongly that was an incredibly new experience but also incredibly painful experience i didn't have a lot of joy or happiness when i first started recovery everything hurt all the time and i wanted out Um, I was ultimately just given an ultimatum essentially by my parents where my parents said, either you stay in treatment and you work on this and you get better, you stay in recovery, or we don't want you going to away to college. We don't want you moving out. You will have to be 
watched like a child. Um, and that for me, that was enough motivation for me to say, okay, I'll try. I didn't promise to try for very long. You know, I promised to try until I was out of the house, until I was in college. And then I would go back to my eating disorder. And so I kind of faked my way through treatment. And I picked up on a lot of things that I needed to know just to get to that time. But then once I got to that time, I realized, hey, I can go back. And I didn't want to, even though it was hard and I was still crying at meals. I was still very much struggling. I didn't want to go back. Um, recovery is worth it in the end, but recovery along the way gives you tiny rewards. And if you pick up on them, it can be incredibly motivating to keep going. It definitely fuels recovery to realize, hey, I can climb up the stairs without getting winded, or I can go on a hike with my friends or yeah, I planned something for breakfast, but they're all going to get donuts instead. And I think I could maybe try that. Hmm. Those new experiences are so enriching and so life-giving that I didn't want to be back in isolation. And I knew that using my behaviors would definitely lead to isolation. Um, And that's something I talked about a lot with my therapist at the time was that I loved connecting with people. I craved connection and I was learning to feel all the things that come with connection, you know, the joy and the pain of it because relationships, sometimes when things get hard, you know, I'll remind myself, I still can use a behavior and I know what will happen if I do. And it still might feel safer. And then I can tell myself, well, you can, you can relapse at any time, so why don't you wait until the next meal? Or why don't you wait until tomorrow? And, or wait until some after, after some big event. And a lot of times by that next meal or day or after the event, I don't really want to relapse anymore. Mm-hmm. I love what you said about, and it's, I think it's important for our listeners to recognize this, For people who are in eating disorders, and I relate to this as as, um, as Sarah had said, it is an all-consuming, isolating, uh, painful, and I'll just speak for myself, painful uh, existence. And I, I remember, you know, when I realized that I couldn't run anymore. I couldn't like running as like an activity of joy and sort of look at my, look at my muscles propel me forward as this human being on this planet. Like that was, that was always such a joy for me, you know, growing up like as an athlete. And then the moment in my eating disorder when I was too weak, you know, and to all the things to do it. Um, I just couldn't like I had no lung capacity. Everything hurt, you know, it was such a, was certainly a wake-up call um it wasn't one that that you know turned the tide at that point but it was certainly something that stuck out as being a very sad recognition and so i bring that up because i think that it is important to remind ourselves sarah and the listeners that like eating disorders are 
isolating. And they're, they're, you know, the more I have conversations on this podcast, the more it's affirmed that life is about connecting. Life is about those experiences. Life is about the on a whim going to, going to have a chat and breakfast with friends. It's that's, that's, that is, that is where like the true joy is in life and eating disorders strip that away. Yeah. And I think that's really important to recognize for people very in their eating disorders and out of it, how much the eating disorder really takes away because it can be huge. And I agree with you. It was a very painful and isolating experience there. But I think it's also really important to recognize that before my eating disorder, there was joy and connection and light in my life. Um, And that the eating disorder promised so much, but never, never actually went through on the promises. It was a lot of promising and not a lot of following through um, in a way that it's a very abusive relationship between a person and their eating disorder. And just, it's very difficult to get out of just as all abusive relationships are. But once you're out to look back, you can kind of see things more clearly and realize, oh, wow, like this is a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, One of the, I think I, I noted in your, your Instagram uh, sort of bio is that it said something along the lines of learning how to eat again. What, what does that mean to you? And what are, what are some of the sort of tools and lessons you've learned in your own sort of, you know, early recovery? Yeah. Um, I put the phrase learning to eat in my bio because for a long time I worked with infants and toddlers for a job and I would see them transition in all their areas of life and they're growing and developing, learning to eat. You know, they go from a bottle to a sippy cup to a cup, they go from finger foods and smashed foods to to whole pieces, to using utensils, and then table manners. All of those things are all pieces that they have to learn and at the end of the day those are all pieces of eating and connecting with people eating in a way that they can go out and be with friends 10 years 15 years from now and what they learned so early on will still be applicable even if it's just you know a second thought for them or no it doesn't even cross my mind when i sit down to the table that i need to get a napkin or get a fork. I know that I need a fork to eat a certain food, but children don't know that. And in my eating disorder, that's something I didn't know either. You know, I didn't know what foods I liked. I didn't know what I didn't like. I didn't know what drinks I liked. I didn't know if I preferred toast or untoasted bread. You know, those are all things that kids have to kind of figure out as they move on. They have to figure out their preferences. That's something that I had to learn. Um, and honestly, the only way I did it was by experimenting. I started with foods that felt safer and tried a different flavor or tried a different version of it, um, added something to the recipe or took something away and figured out, do I like this too? Um, and that really only became possible 
once my mindset shifted into curiosity and curiosity about food became more safe. Uh, once I stepped out of the, the mindset of if I allow myself to think about food, I'll eat it all. That was such a damaging mindset to have um, in so many different ways. It was damaging. And it's one of the reasons that I keep my eating disorder as an option now is that I know I can go back to it. So if I try a new food and my worst fear comes true, I can still go back to my eating disorder. That's something that really helped for a long time. But it was a messy process. I don't know if you've ever, you know, seen a toddler eat, but they get stuff everywhere. Oh yeah, I've seen. And the process I've of seen my wife eat. It's very similar. <laughs> <laughs> the process of cleaning them up is kind of difficult. They've got food in their hair, in between their fingers, under their nails. They've got avocado on the floor and in their pants, and it's messy. But they've enjoyed themselves, and you can see that they've explored a new food thoroughly with all of their senses and that was something that I had to learn to do again and something that really helped me develop a relationship with food and not just fear yeah. of food. I love the beauty of that. Like I, I do love the I think I mentioned it a few times on this podcast, the beauty of children and their sort of natural state of curiosity and just going for it. You know, you you witness the kid at the beach and it's, you know, there's parents who are in sweaters, you know, on the sand and the kid is just in a pair of shorts and just running through the water that's maybe 50 degrees and is not, doesn't seem to be phased by it. There's, there's a certain beauty and joie de vivre that's like, uh, very, uh, I think aspirational for me. Yeah, absolutely. That level of curiosity and, you know, unabandoned joy is is huge in kids. Um, I think it's something that as we get older, we're kind of taught to stuff it down a little bit to make it more acceptable. But I mean, that kid running through the water is freezing Mm -hmm. and he's just in shorts. That is, that's not on his mind. Um, Yeah. He just wants to In that moment, it is. Yeah. In that moment, it is all joy. And I, I love that about kids and I definitely like aspire to aspire to be in the moment with my feelings. Now, is that something that you're actively working on in therapy? Do you think? Absolutely. Um, I tend to focus on. 50 million steps ahead or what I'll feel like when or if something else happens. And I've had to slow down and remember that will come when it comes. Um, And as I build skills to deal with my emotions now and deal with my fears now, I will be better equipped to handle those things in the future. Um, But it's not by any means an easy process. Um, and it's not, it doesn't always feel safe. Um, so it's something that, you know, in therapy, my therapist will start a session with what's on your mind. How are you feeling? And my answer is always about future worries. And recently 
he and I have both been working on what's on my mind right then and how I'm feeling right then in that office and dealing with that emotion and what's it like to sit in that and feel that emotion and that's been huge for me because I will come into therapy happy or excited and I'm able to just feel that and experience that versus worrying about something that's going to happen a week from now. Yeah, because you're robbing yourself of the joy that you could be having in that moment. Yeah, I think it's hugely important to to focus and to deal with what's happening now. Yeah. How are you doing with uh, your self-harm nowadays? There are definitely ups and downs with self-harm. I have a lot of beliefs that I used to hold around my eating disorder um, that very quickly became beliefs that I held around self-harm. And as I work on unraveling those, I have to make sure that those beliefs don't switch to something else very self-destructive. So I, while self-harm isn't a daily active struggle for me anymore. The narratives from self-harm and from the eating disorder definitely still come up and they usually come up in self-harm urges that I have to sit with and think about what need isn't being met um, and ask myself, what do I need? What am I not hearing from myself right then? Hmm. Yeah. Self-harm is an interesting one and it's, it's one I have, as I mentioned, I have experiencing experience in, I, you know, for me, it was about, um, yeah, that, that, like I said, that old story of like feeling like I need to be in pain, you know, I need to be in pain. And if I wasn't feeling pain, then there's something wrong, right? Or I need to turn, you know, I need to, to sort of dissolve the emotional pain with this physical pain. I need to like feel something other than the emotional anguish that I'm not addressing, right? Yeah, it's so important to feel all the feelings mm-hmm. instead of just the pain. Um, but self-harm for me, I mean, it, it definitely started as an emotional release. Um, but as I you know, got more in control of feeling my emotions, I went through um, an intensive outpatient program that focused on just... DPT, um, in learning how to work around and feel emotions, the urges didn't necessarily go away um, because there were still those underlying beliefs. Like you said, if I'm not in pain, not feeling pain, there's something wrong with me. That's definitely a belief I still, to an extent, hold. And I think that that's important to recognize and to call out in ourselves and to feel it, but also to say, I believe this and it cannot be true. Um, I can be in pain and I can be happy or I can be in pain and I cannot self-harm. That word and is so important when you're feeling emotions. Um, And to cut it off before the and, that's the very one-sided thinking of self-harm and feeling pain is that it's just all you can focus on in that moment. It's hard to look at the bigger picture. Yeah. Yeah, the world and the universe is not binary, nor are we, you know, as humans. We're, we're you know, we're star matter. We're, we're 
this uh, beautiful random happenstance that 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 uh, in us is a lot of you know I think chaos and whim and I think um, I I think for me like reminding myself that trying to control too much is is a path to uh, frustration and um, heartache and uh, trying to be present more trying to relinquish more of that controlling of things that maybe don't matter or things that aren't really in my control is like a huge help for me. What does that look like for you? To How do you decide what things matter and don't matter? Yeah, that's a good question. I, you know, I think that, <laughs> I think I start with what is it, I try to discern like what is, what is in my control and what is not in my control. And what I've learned that, what I've learned about that is that I can control very little, really. I can control what I bring to experiences. I can control, you know, maybe how I'm, not even how I'm feeling. I, I can control um, how I'm reacting to my emotions, you know, whatever emotions pop up. Um, I can control i can make the decision to to sit with my feelings as opposed to uh reacting to them instantly reacting to them um but i can't control how others react 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 to them i can't control um the situation i can't control uh anyone else other than really how I sort of react to situations. That's kind of like where I've, where I've come to. So I start there and I, I, from there I, I learn to value my own feelings. I recognize them as important parts of my journey. I learn to recognize that I value my heart and the rest of it is an exercise in, um, knowing that there there's a lot of chaos in the world and i think we we have a tendency as a culture to put a negative connotation on chaos but i i don't use it in that way i think chaos is just another way to describe how how the earth kind of exists how how we exist as beings on this pale blue dot i think there's a lot of chaos that we can't control. And I know for me, you know, there is a lot of control. There was a lot of control wrapped up in my eating disorder. There was a lot of control wrapped up in my anxiety and, and even my depression. And so for me, like squashing those, those desires to control all the things has helped me immensely and has, has, has allowed me the grace to get back into my heart, to get back into um, you know, relationships, strong relationships, um, important conversations, um, things like that. And I, 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 I don't worry the way I used to worry about just stuff that exists out of, outside of that purview, you know, and it's hard, it's hard to get there. And I struggle sometimes with it still, but, um, that has been a lot of my work the past 10 years is, is really recognizing that distinction of what we can and can't control 
and then from there you know having having that space to like oh okay, i'm free of that and now i can really kind of focus on the things that do matter to me yeah i think prioritizing realizing what you can and can't control and then prioritizing what you can control is huge and figuring out how you react to things and what matters to you we have only so much emotional energy you've got to save it for the important stuff and i think that's something that I've had to work really hard on is picking my battles, picking what I do and do not control, um, what I choose to let go of and what I choose to really focus on. What, what in your mind can you control, Sarah? I think it's a lot of what you said. Um, I think a part of my mind likes to think I can control the world around me or other people's reactions. You know, I'll think about a conversation ahead of ahead of time just in my mind and play it out a million different ways and at the end of the day that person never responds the way I played it out um, and I think it's I'm learning to come to the realization that all I can control are my actions and my reactions to things um, and even then I have to understand that those things are not a hundred percent in my control right. you know um, I have Things that will make emotions more or less intense. Um, my past histories with people, um, relationships that I've had in the past, will make relations will form the ways the relationships that I have now very different. Um, and I think it's important to recognize that and to give myself grace. Um, I think reactions to the world around me. I am very cognizant of when I have a choice. Um, oftentimes, I'm able to stop and think I could choose to run away from this or hide. Um, I could choose to get really angry or I could choose to give it grace. Uh, and I pick from those things. And, you know, sometimes remembering that it's okay to get angry or upset about some things just as it is okay to give grace or okay to feel the pain or take a step back all of those actions uh, are appropriate in their own timing um, and deciding what reaction i want to have and when i think is absolutely huge mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and there's a lot of i think like when i when i say like relinquish control and give in to chaos. I, I think there's a lot of, I, I'd imagine people sort of maybe balk at that a little bit and, and, and that's, that's a scary proposition, right? It's scary to, to, to say that we're all just stardust floating around, you know, randomly. And, and I don't mean that exactly, but like it is scary to think about the world that way. Um, but that's how I see the world. And, and for me, it, it gives me, it gives me peace. It gives me permission to, to let go. And that, and that I think has been huge for me. And I, I wonder for you, Sarah, like the, the battles that you have in your own head with control, whether it's relationally or food or whatever, what are, what would happen if you let go? Like, what are your, what are you what are your fears? 
I think that letting go of control makes me feel like somebody else will be in control. Um, and when other people are in control, I feel like that brings up a lot of history for me. Uh, you know, as a kid, our parents are in control, our teachers are in control. As we get older, different people are in control over us. Um, and so I like feeling like I have some say in what goes on in my life. Um, but I've heard you say multiple times, you know, the idea that we're all just not in control of anything. We, you know, we're kind of just stardust. That's a thought that is very comforting. Um, because at the end of the day, for me to not have control, if that thought is true, then the other people in my life don't have control either. Um, I think giving up control, though, it's just one of those things that feels unpredictable. Um, just like with everything else in recovery, um, fighting for control, even if it doesn't work, I know what it feels like and it feels safe and familiar. But to give up control, that's, that's a newer concept for me and not one that I know all the way through. I don't know every single step. And there's a little bit of darkness here and there. There's a little shadow. Yeah. Um, I might, you know, misstep and hurt somebody or hurt myself or destroy a relationship in the process. Um, and so it's just the fear of what does that look like? The fear of the unknown of what would happen if I weren't trying to control everything. That, you know, is really just the main fear in it. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's understandable, and I, I think we can all very much relate to that, including me, for sure. I think that, you know, I, I think that, that that's probably a battle we'll all sort of be fighting our whole lives, really, is to come to a place where we can let go and and, and, and enjoy the present, right? You mentioned earlier, Sarah, like, trying to be present in your therapy sessions. And that's, I think that's the aim in life is, is because the fact is no matter what sort of mental games we play today, it's not going to affect tomorrow. Tomorrow is tomorrow. Today is what we have now, like in this moment, this hour, this minute, this second, like that is what we have. Like that is, that is the reality we're experiencing now. And that's, that's, that's what we can see and perceive and react to tomorrow. We don't even know what's going to be. And, and so, you know, I know it's easier said than done. Of course, I, I struggle with it as we all do, but I feel like that is the aim. One of the sort of core aims in life is to find it in ourselves to be, be present, take in today and not, not fret about tomorrow or next week or next year or whatever it's just because to the now is what we have you know yeah i think that being present in the now and your experience of what is happening right now it can be so powerful uh, it can it's very difficult to do and i think being mindful of that and not judging um i i I think not judging yourself for 
for looking into the future, for worrying about the future, worrying about the past, because that is a natural human tendency. You know, we're all just blobs with anxiety. So we're all going to focus on different things, but to be in this moment, to be mindful of what is going on in this moment, my experience at this moment is really the only thing I can control. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me, Sarah, how are you feeling right now? Well, I'm a lot less nervous about this than <laughs> I was at the beginning. That's good. Um, I don't know. I kind of feel vulnerable, which is a new emotion for me. Um, it's something that I don't tend to let myself feel, so that's kind of uncomfortable. But also really proud of myself for letting this happen. You should be proud. You're, you're a very yes, courageous, um, heart-leading person, and I, I'm very proud of you. And I, I wanted to um, do a little thing right now. Uh, so earlier, before we started recording, I, I, you know, I had been mentioned that I've been struggling with some, some darkness, and I, I created my new mantra for 2020. And I'm going to read it aloud, and I want you, you to read it aloud after me. All right. So the mantra is... I am worthy, I deserve love, I don't need to be in pain. Wow, I love that. I am worthy, I deserve love, I don't need to be in pain. And, you know, I, I think, you know, a mantra is great because it's just, it's just a reminder. It's something that I, I think we can all take with us and I think we can all find something in. And, you know, it may in moments be hard to believe and we may, you know, say, ugh, I don't know about that or whatever. But, you know, if we keep coming back to it, it can become, it can become a reality. And I, I believe that. So I'm giving that to you, Sarah. I'm giving that to you listeners. Just remember, I am worthy. I deserve love. I don't need to be in pain. And I, I think that that's, uh, you know, that could be very helpful if you, if you take it. Yeah, that's absolutely beautiful. Thank yeah, you. You're welcome. Well, I, I, I really do appreciate your vulnerability, and I, I am very proud of you, and you should be proud of yourself. And I, I uh, you know, you matter to me, Sarah, so I, I uh, you know, just remember that you matter. So that's <laughs> that's what I'm going to say right now in this moment. Well, thank you so much for holding the space for me to be vulnerable and talk about these things. I really appreciate that. Yeah, it's it's my joy for sure. Uh, let's let's uh, let's talk about empathy heroes. How does that sound? Let's do All it. All right, so listeners, this is the part of the show where my guests and I each mention an empathy hero or two, someone we know personally, a friend, family member, or even a character from a book or a novel someone who is very empathetic. Um, I will go first because I have two real-life examples that happened recently. Um, this past weekend, uh, my friends Becky and Norm held uh, an Irish New Year party, so on New Year's Eve. Um, and Irish New Year meaning uh, it started at 1 and ended around uh, 4 p.m. Uh, Pacific time. <laughs> And uh, just timing with how, you know, in Ireland it ends at midnight and just the, the time 
they're like nine hours ahead or whatever. Um, and it's perfect, you know, for kids, uh, cause all of my friends have kids. And I bring it up because at that party, uh, a friend of Becky's, her name is Jen, uh, came up to me and, and, and was a listener of the podcast and said, you know, she, you know, she's, she loves the podcast and listens and, and is really excited about Feel the Human and, and was just so, uh, warm and present and, um, we hugged and she was mentioning that she's uh, starting um, training and being a death doula. So being there for people, being present for people who are going, um, who are dying or, or, or the sort of the siblings or relations of that person who are dying, just being there and being present and sort of allowing uh, sort of a healing, loving space during that, you know, which is often a very scary, fearful even taboo time. So I think that's just, just such a beautiful way to, you know, sort of express your gifts and, and lead with your heart. And I, I wanted to give Jen a shout out to say that like, Jen, that's amazing. I'm really um, grateful that you're doing that. And I'm excited to hear, hear how the training goes. Um, and then my second empathy hero this week is um, I, a, a listener of the show, Laura, um, who is based in Tucson, Arizona. We had a phone, phone chat just yesterday. Just, you know, she's been struggling with, um, some physical pains and, you know, we just, I just thought like, Hey, let's have a chat. And we chatted and I don't know. Um, I'm, first of all, I just love the fact that, um, you know, I've, I've just created su- such beautiful connections through the podcast. And I just wanted to give Laura a shout out because I think, She's been struggling with her physical pain and, and, and something I relate to a lot of, a lot of pain in, um, like, in a lot of mystery and like, like a lot of like invalidation from the medical community and a lot of like, I don't know what's going on with my body, but I wanted to give a shout out to Laura because like she's been, um, so courageous in trying to find answers. And I know that's hard at times. So, um, I just wanted to give Laura a shout out. So Jen and Laura are my empathy heroes this week. That's awesome. Yeah. So it sounds like two pretty great people. Absolutely. Um, I think I have two as well. Uh, my empathy hero that I know in person is actually um, a friend of mine, um, Sebastian. He's a teenager and he lives close to me and we connected this past summer um, and since then I've hung out a lot. Um, you know, talked about some pretty heavy stuff and I was having a really hard time earlier this week kind of coming down from some really significant anxiety. Um, and that's usually something that I just have to, to wait out, but he asked if he could help me walk through it. And I was like, of course, you know, I'm not going to stop you, but this is kind of something that I just do. And it's just like a fact of my life. Um, and he was able to just reflect back to me what I was feeling in the most relatable ways, um, phrasing things in ways I hadn't thought of and just being overly very, very kind, uh, and validating. Um, he was very willing to sit with me and my emotions and let me feel the panic and not judge what that looked like. Um, and for me, that was like an incredibly healing experience for somebody to see somebody to see something so raw and still 
stay. Um, and then my second empathy hero is somebody that I met on Instagram. Um, her name is Constance. She's constantly eating. Um, she's a dietitian on Instagram that occasionally posts pictures um, or reminders on her story of people mattering. And she posted a video of her saying, you know, if nobody has said this for you, I'm here to remind you that I am in awe of how hard this is and you're still trying, you know, you're still here in recovery. And it was something that I didn't even know I needed to hear, but I so badly needed somebody to see how hard I'm trying and how hard I have been trying for the past weeks. Um, and so I messaged her and said, totally need this. I needed the reminder. I needed the permission to feel it. Um, and on and off for almost a year, I would think now, we've talked and um, debated different things just in the eating disorder community. And she's always been willing to listen, um, always providing affirmation, not just to me, but to our audience. And I think she's, they're both pretty amazing people. Uh, yeah, I, I, that sounds amazing. Two perfect examples of empathy heroes. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. Uh, Sarah, where where can people um, connect with you online? Yeah, so my biggest presence is on Instagram. Um, it's at Sarah is smiling, and there's a period between the Sarah is and this is and smiling. Um, if you look for me, my name is just S on the profile, but Sarah's in the full cap in the username. Um, I have reflections on learning to eat in my bio. Um, that's where you can find me most. I post question boxes fairly often to hear back from my followers. Um, and also I'm always open to DMs and comments wanting to start a conversation or wanting a post on it. Um, you can also find me um, on my personal Instagram at I'm Sarah Kinger. Um, it's less mental health and more of my personal life. Um, but there are definitely more sides to me than my mental health. So I like to give people that one too. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, listeners, those are linked in the show notes for this episode. Sarah, thank you so much for being a part of this. I really admire your, your vulnerability and, and certainly your articulation of your feelings and your struggles and your joys and your lows. And I, I, you know, at, 22 I think you said you were I you know I'm just I'm in awe of that and and so I, I wanted to commend you and just remind you that uh, you do matter friend you do you do immensely so thank you for being a part of you empathy thank you so much for having me and holding space for me always and to you listeners I'm here you're here we're here together on this wayward overwhelming inspiring pale blue dot we have each other it's you, me, empathy.